The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. All right, so let's go to, we're continuing on in 1 Corinthians 8. We're going through this epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. And he wrote this to a church that he planted and pastored for a year and a half. And he corresponded with them as he had to leave and plant other churches. And they were probably, who knows, five to seven years old as a church plant when Paul wrote this letter. They were mostly probably saved out of paganism because the city of Corinth was very pagan, uh, not rooted in Old Testament scriptural truth, all kinds of ideologies and uh, Roman gods and goddesses and Greek gods and goddesses and a lot of humanism and secularism, atheism, a combination, just an eclectic hodgepodge of false religion that was not in accordance with the Bible. So people, as they heard the gospel, when Paul planted this church, got saved out of that background. So not only are they relatively new believers uh, within that seven-year range, they also don't have a deep history of biblical knowledge. So there's a lot they don't know about the Old Testament. There's a lot they don't know about a biblical worldview. And as a result, when you're lacking biblical knowledge and revelation from God, uh, that poses problems for you as you live day to day and face different trials in life. Because then you're confronted with a situation. It's, so how, how do I deal with this now that I'm a Christian? How do I uh, live and what does God expect of me? Or sometimes we don't even think about what God expects of us in a certain situation and then that gets us in trouble. And that was true of the Corinthians. So they were immature in terms of chronology and their age as believers, but they were also immature in terms of their behavior and attitudes. A lot of them. Paul said that at the beginning. We read that already. He said, you're carnal, you're babies, you're immature, you're self-centered. A lot of you, not all of you, but most of you. And this is causing problems in the church. It's causing division. It's causing arguments. It's causing a horrible testimony in the world in which you live. It's so bad that I'm hearing about this 200 miles away from people in, in Ephesus. This should not be. So he writes this letter as a correct 16 letters of a rebuke is what he's doing. This is not a love letter from your happy pastor. Now, Pastor John MacArthur, he's down in Southern California, and he's been pastoring for 40-plus years. And John, You say John MacArthur, and a lot of times you create reactions from people, either good ones or not so good ones <laughs> because of sometimes what he says publicly from the pulpit and how he exposits scripture but he was speaking at a pastor's conference two weeks ago that i went to and he was talking about jesus confronting the churches in revelation and jesus was mad and he's talking to churches and he's talking to christians and john MacArthur made this concluding statement that kind of jolted me in my pew as i was in spitting range of the pulpit as he was saying it he said, uh, and here Jesus condemns the church. And he said, it is the job of every pastor to condemn the church. And I went, wow, really? Should I add that to my job description? But anyway, um, that's true of Paul, if you're honest. 16 chapters, he is rebuking the church that he planted. He is rebuking the church and the people that he loves. Because he loves the truth and he wants them to grow in the truth. So that's kind of the tenor of this book as we're reading it. So if you're going along like you're not getting the warm fuzzies from chapter to chapter, that has nothing to do with me if I'm teaching objectively and properly because Paul doesn't have warm fuzzies. And so in chapter 8 through 11, actually 8, 9, and 10, this is a section that goes together. I already explained this. Paul's dealing with a specific issue and a problem in the church, and it was confusion the Corinthians had really about a religious issue that intersected with practical living. And that was verse 1. We already saw that. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here is the topic that covers the next three chapters. 
in Corinthians. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now concerning food that has been dedicated to an idol. Now concerning meat that's been dedicated to a false god. So the Corinthians question to Paul was, is it okay to eat meat that has been dedicated to a false pagan god? Which was very common in Paul's day. It was a pagan society. There were pagan temples everywhere. They were so common that there was public access and entrance to all these pagan temples, to all these pagan gods. It was a part of their life. It was in the fabric of their culture. You couldn't escape it. It was everywhere you turned. It's like going into Safeway and you're going through the checkout stand and you've got all these half-pornographic magazines on every stand in every grocery market. That's just the way it is. It's part of culture. And that's the way it was for these Corinthians who were getting saved. And so in these temples, it was common that they would sell meat in the temples. And there are basically two places you could buy meat in Paul's day in Corinth. You could buy it at just the, like the public marketplace, like at Safeway. And there was no religion involved, but it was higher price. They jacked the prices up. If you wanted cheaper meat, you could go to a religious temple. Like you got a Costco card and they only let members in or whatever. And you can go there, but these were religious institutions and, and that meat had been dedicated, prayed to a false god, but you could get it for cheaper. But for the Christian, a guy who came out of paganism and idol worship um, and used to do that and then becomes a Christian and realizes he was worshiping false gods and he knew that was wrong and that was a sin. And now his whole life he used to eat the meat purchased in the temple. And now as a Christian, it kind of it bothers his conscience. I can't buy meat in that temple anymore. I've got to go to Safeway. Or it's not religious. I'll have to pay the higher price because I can't eat that meat because it was it was prayed over by some false priest to Artemis, the false god. And I don't want to eat that meat. It's contaminated. It's full of demons. Um, so that's what some Christians actually believe. There were other Christians who were called stronger Christians who realized, no, demons can't get inside of hamburger. And demons aren't going to go inside of you as a result of eating meat dedicated to an idol. As a matter of fact, idols are nothing. They're made out of stick and wood and... Uh, other materials and it's just a thing that man made and it's not real, it's not a real God as a matter of fact there aren't any other gods except the one true God and that's God the Father, the triune God Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that's the only God and so stronger, more knowledgeable doctrinally sound Christians in that area knew that even if there was hamburger that had been prayed to some false God and uh, an idol, they knew it wasn't infected by demons or false gods they could eat that hamburger anyway they didn't care, it's just Good ground beef, I can eat it anyway. I don't care who prayed over it or who killed the cow. And so there, this was a difference that was creating problems in the church for Corinth. And so Christians were being divisive and confused, and uh, the stronger Christians were looking down their nose at weaker Christians who had a weak conscience about eating meats dedicated to an idol. And so Paul wants to address this issue. So a lot of people will summarize this section by saying chapter 8 deals with gray areas. I would say, yeah, yeah, it does. Or Christian liberties. Yeah, it does, but it's more than that. It's more technical than that. Uh, it's more detailed than that. There are specific nuances that play into that even more so. Because if you read chapter 8, 9, and 10 carefully, it's not just any gray area. It's really important. Because I listed about 25 potential gray areas for Christians three weeks ago. Like playing cards. Is it okay for Christians to play cards? Is it okay? I mean, those kind of things. Is it okay for a Christian to own a Mercedes-Benz as opposed to a broken-down VW? That's really spiritual. Um, 
So those are potential gray areas, but that really isn't the point of emphasis for Paul. The gray, he's talking about a specific category of gray area. And it's gray areas that intersect with or have to do with religious influence somehow. Religious influence. So, uh, and also it has to do, he's addressing Christians who used to be involved in this pagan religious practice and now have been become Christian. So there is an experiential reality to the gray area. So there could be gray areas in our life that we have no experiential reality or experience with whatsoever. That's not what Paul's talking about. For, here's an example. What I mean by the experiential reality of a gray area. Say there's a member or there's a person in the church who doesn't like um, electric guitars or drums because he thinks they're of the world. Now, there are, I've talked to some Christians over the years who actually believe that. Drums are of the world. Electric guitars are of the world. And they, it bothers them that the church allows drums and electric guitar in the church. That's worldly. That's a compromise. That's not biblical. It bothers them terribly. And I've, had, I've interacted with Christians um, at previous churches in trying to figure out their thinking. that Yeah, and it's, uh, you shouldn't have the, your electric guitar or drums in this church because... I'm the weaker brother, and it will offend me if you do. It'll bother my conscience. Well, that scenario doesn't apply to what Paul's talking about directly, chapters 8 through 10, for two reasons. Uh, There's no religious connotation whatsoever inherently with an electric guitar. Paul's talking about things that have to do with religious... uh, The topic, verse 1, sacrifice to idols, and he carries that theme all throughout. That is talking about false. It is integrated with false religion to the core. So if there's not a religious component at the core, it's not a, a clear, direct parallel. The second way that analogy isn't directly the same is the guy, some people I've talked to in particular who said they didn't like electric guitars and it bothered their conscience. They actually never played electric guitars. They weren't in a rock band in their previous saved life. They didn't do drugs while they played guitar. They just don't like the electric guitar. That is not a parallel to what Paul's talking about because the person with the weak conscience in Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 actually practiced the very thing they have a weak conscience toward now as a believer. Uh, so those are two very significant differences. With that background, let's go ahead and look at uh, 7 through 13. If you missed the sermon I did on verses 1 through 6, uh, I think we've got one of those recorded um, one through six, we cover that for some background. So we're just going to pick up verse seven. So there's two main points that I made out of this whole chapter. Last time we talked, we looked at point number one, and that was the affirmation. In dealing with this problem issue, as Paul's trying to settle the issue, he's trying to be a judge. One of the roles actually of a pastor or elder is to be a judge. Really. And Paul's being a judge here. And so he's, the first thing he does to solve the problem, first before did not diagnosing the problem and then solving the problem and then making a recommendation and then giving a decree as a good judge, before he does all that, he wants to find common ground, bind their hearts in truth, make that the foundation, the baseline for believers, and then when we're all standing on the baseline of truth, we'll proceed from there. And so that's why I call verses 1 through 6 the affirmation. Paul is affirming truths they all share in common, whether you're a weak Christian, strong Christian, long-time Christian, short-time Christian, and he's establishing that foundation. So that's what he did in verses 1 through 6. And the, the main truth he was trying to establish was that monotheism, the existence of one God, is the main truth of Christianity, and that one God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And he's the only God that exists. So if you are a Christian and you think there are other uh, competing gods, lower gods, lesser gods, false gods, or if idols are real, get that out of your mind because they aren't. There are no competing gods. There's only one God, period. Some of the Corinthians needed to hear that because some of the Corinthians were still, even though they were Christians, were polytheistic in their thinking. They knew the true triune God, but they still had polytheistic tendencies thinking that, well, those lesser false gods were actually real and could pop up in an idol and make a difference. So that was the baseline. That was the affirmation. Paul says, hey, let's get our theology proper straight on the triune God that we know and love and worship. We've got to all get on the same page there. So that's what he did. Now he's going to transition from that affirmation of common ground in our knowledge to the admonition. So that's uh, point number two in your outline today. Uh, the admonition. Paul is now going to give the only command in this chapter. That's significant. If you're doing a Bible study in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13, and you want to break this thing down, one of the things you look for in passages when you're doing Bible study is, okay, where are the imperatives? Where are the commands? These are the things we need to do. There were no imperatives in the first six verses. The only imperative in this chapter is in verse 9. And it's kind of the focal point of this section, verses 7 through 13, so you might want to highlight that. Also, when you're doing a Bible study, you want to recognize key words that weave it together. Key words in verses 1 through 6 was knowledge or know, used eight times. We talked about that already. But in 7 through 13, one of the key words is conscience. It's used in verse 7, 10, and 12. Conscience. So Paul's going to emphasize the conscience and how important that is for a believer. And here he's emphasizing, he's talking to the stronger Christian, trying to get them aware and be sensitive to the conscience of the weaker brother in Christ in your local church. That's the main thing we should take away today. From this passage is, there's a command for me, and as a Christian, I need to be cognizant of all my brothers and sisters around me, and I need to be sensitive to their conscience and their religious, spiritual sensibilities and from the past from which they came and how my behavior and how my actions in specific gray areas impact their conscience. My liberty, the exercise of my liberties, does it cause them to stumble? Does it cause them to sin? Does it cause them to stumble up in their faith? That is the main issue. We don't live for self. We live towards one another and for one another. That is the Christian ethic, being other-oriented, not self-centered of individualism. So let's go ahead and look at 7 through 13. The admonition, what is Paul's admonition? Well, Paul rebukes wrong actions. He rebukes wrong actions of the stronger Christians in a particular area. And then I broke up uh, verses 7 through 13 just kind of into three main points, and I'll give those each as I go. First, we'll look at um, verses 7 and 8 together. And like I said, the main word I'm going to use here to weave 7 through 13 together is conscience. And so kind of a subheading for 7 through 13 would be knowledge about the Bible. The strong Christian had knowledge. Good doctrine. But he lacked love. He, was, he didn't care how his knowledge impacted believers who didn't have his knowledge. And so they were causing weaker believers to stumble. And so Paul concludes, no, it's not just about knowledge. It's not just about taking baby Hebrew and now you can olive bait and you know those words. It's more than that. Knowledge is important, but it's not enough. Knowledge is important, but it's not sufficient. You need knowledge plus 
love. That's Christianity. That's the balance. And so with that in mind, uh, that's the driving theme in verses 7 through 13. Knowledge and love must work together to do three things toward the strong believer as they think about the weaker brother. And it all has to do with their conscience. First is uh, verses 7 and 8. Knowledge and love must work together so that we might be aware of the weak conscience. We need to be aware of the weak conscience of those in our midst on specific issues. So let's go ahead and look at verse uh, 7 and 8. Before I look at verse 7 and 8, I, I want to run these by you. These are like real-life scenarios that have to do with gray areas, Christian liberty, with those two components I talked about of religion involved somehow. religious pra- False religious practice is weaved in. And also experience being saved out of that false religion. And here are questions that I have entertained over the years as a pastor in not just this church but various churches where I was posed with this dilemma and I was supposed to give counsel on this question. And also some of these kind of have played uh, at different times in my own life as a Christian. So here are the questions that I think are relevant and parallel what Paul's talking about and we can glean principles to answer these questions. Here's questions that I've received over the years, especially as a pastor. Uh, a person might say, well, my sister is gay. And she's getting married. And she's invited me to the ceremony. Pastor, as a Christian, should I attend? Should I attend? See how it's relational to? Uh, Here's another one. My brother is gay. And he's invited me and the family to the Thanksgiving dinner that he's hosting at his house. Pastor, as a Christian, should I attend Thanksgiving at my gay brother's house? Uh, another one. My my neighbors are Mormons. Different religion. They have kids. Same age as my kids. Should I let my kids play with their kids, even though they're a different religion? Uh, my neighbors are Catholic. I'm Protestant. But my neighbors are really nice. My Catholic neighbors, they're very nice, and their kids are nice. Our kids are friends. They play together. Uh, the Catholic family that we're friends with, they've invited us to the baptism of their new week-old baby, should I attend the baptism at their church, even though I'm not a Catholic and I don't go to that church? Oh, here's another one. I'm developing some good rapport with colleagues at work. Uh, I've been invited to the office New Year's Eve party at a dance club and bar downtown. Should I attend? Everybody in the office is going. And I am kind of expected to be there. Another one. My aunt and uncle are hosting Christmas dinner. They're Catholic and they pray to Mary before the meal. And in throughout their house they have statues of the saints and of Mary. And I'm Protestant. I'm not Catholic. Should I attend this Christmas dinner? Here's another one. Uh, can I send my kids to a Catholic high school. I'm not Catholic. I'm Protestant. Is that a compromise? Or should I send my kids to a Catholic college? You go to GBF, Grace Bible Fellowship, Evangelical Church. Should you be sending your kids to a Catholic school, to Notre Dame, to locally here, Santa Clara? Those are issues that come up that Christians got to think through, or maybe it's elementary Catholic school. Um, some people would, some Christians would say, absolutely not. You don't send your kids to a Catholic school. Pollute you. Send them to a real Christian school like UCLA. <laughs> that, that was a joke. 
Or send them to, don't send them to a Catholic school, send them to the pagan university. That'd be better. Really? So Christians have those dialogues and debates and it can get really passionate and emotional because this is where we live. This is, you're talking about our children and how they're educated. So those are real life scenarios we have to deal with. Um, Paul's going to give us principles to think through, pray through, and answer those kind of very difficult questions. Sometimes in the discussions I have with, that I've had with Christians uh, on both sides of the fence of the answers to these questions, um, like the stronger Christians might say, uh, sure, you can go to the bar in the dance club New Year's Eve. Why not? And then literally I've Christians, their argument, well, Jesus, he, he had dinner with sinners. He with sinners? I mean, yeah, that's true. You can't deny that. So you're thinking, oh, that's the biblical principle. Well, that's not the whole biblical principle. Because here's an important corollary to that truth. Jesus never ate dinner with sinners or sinners' places on the sinners' conditions. Jesus always ate dinner with sinners on Jesus' conditions and terms. Always. That's a huge difference. It's not just a free-for-all, do whatever you want, and cave into all the convictions and things that sinners do. So if you go through the Gospels and look at every time Jesus had dinner with a sinner, you will note who was in charge who was laying down parameters, who was laying down the guidelines, who was dictating the terms. I'll give you one example in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, where Jesus was coming into Jericho, and there was uh, Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. wanted to see Jesus, so he climbed up a sycamore tree, and he was a tax collector. It says in the passage he was a sinner. He was not saved. He was a compromiser. He was a traitor to his people. He was a traitor to his country. He was greedy. He was a thief. He ripped people off. He built them for a living and was and became incredibly wealthy as a result. He was rich because he stole people's money. And he was a tax collector. And in Israel, tax collectors were outcasts of society from Jews. They just saw them as the ultimate compromisers. We want nothing to do with uh, tax collectors, be it Zacchaeus or Matthew, who was known as Levi before he got saved. So he, he is the consummate sinner. I mean, a tax collector was considered worse than a prostitute. And so here's Zacchaeus, the thief, the conniving, self-centered, bilking thief. Sees Jesus coming into town. He's, probably, he's heard about Jesus. This is the end of Jesus' ministry. And he wants to see Jesus because he's intrigued. Who, yeah, who's this Jesus guy? Maybe I can get a miracle. Who knows what his motive was? And then Jesus comes up and he sees... I mean, there's throngs of crowds all over the place. And it just says that Jesus put his eyes on Zacchaeus and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down right here. And then he, they were going to have dinner together, but Jesus was the one that set the time and the place. Zacchaeus, we are having dinner at your house. See, Jesus is dictating the terms and, and the time. And we're doing it today. Jesus is in charge. Now, Zacchaeus, uh, being the immoral man that he was across the board, probably when he got together with his buddies and had dinner, who knows if it was uh, probably a lot of drinking, a lot of drunkenness, a lot of uh, immorality probably. That was probably a typical time together with Zacchaeus and his buddies. So if Jesus were just going to have dinner with Zacchaeus while Zacchaeus had his normal dinner, there would have been a lot of immorality going on. That wasn't the case with Jesus. It's going to be dinner on his terms. And the passage goes on to say that when people heard about it, so Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. And when people heard about it, they, oh my, can you believe Jesus is having dinner with Zacchaeus, a sinner? How dare he? I thought he was a prophet. I thought he was a holy man. How dare he commiserate with 
uh, evil people like Zacchaeus. He's got the cooties. And the result of the dinner and the time and the interaction with Jesus, it is clear that Jesus, while he was at dinner in Zacchaeus' home, Jesus spoke the truth. He gave the gospel. We know he had to verbalize the gospel because it says that Zacchaeus got saved in his house. And you can't get saved apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we know what happened over dinner. Who was dictating the conversation and everything about the conversation. So yes, Jesus had dinner with sinners, but Jesus dictated the terms. And that's a good principle for us as believers. If we're going to inter- interface with unbelievers, we don't just let them do everything and we don't just cave in to every compromise and sinful thing they lay before us and we're just a doormat. Because Jesus never did that. So I just challenge you to go through all the times Jesus had dinner interactions with people and you see Jesus was not going to compromise on holiness or truth. He was respectful. He loved people. He cared about their soul. He wanted them saved. But he cared about the truth and stood for the truth. So uh, that's a, a very important principle. And then also, uh, Jesus was well. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Yeah, he was. But Jesus wasn't a friend of sinners based on the sinners' terms. The sinners didn't dictate the terms. As a matter of fact, if the sinners tried to dictate the terms of their friendship with Jesus, they wouldn't become friends of Jesus. They would become enemies. And Jesus had a lot of enemies. So uh, those are important corollaries we need to add to our principles of living. So now we'll go back to our outline. The admonition, as Paul rebukes uh, wrong thinking, looking at verses 7 and 8. And that first one is that knowledge and love must work together so that we can become aware of the weak conscience in our midst of brothers and sisters in Christ. And in verse 7, Paul uh, starts out and says, However, not all men or not all Christians in your local church have this knowledge. What knowledge? Monotheism. That monotheism is true. There are no other false gods, lesser gods, or competing gods. There's only one God, the triune God. Now, not all Christians, at least in Corinth, realized that they still had polytheism on the brain. So Paul tries to straighten that out. So he recognizes there are still Christians who are weak in this area by virtue of their thinking and their knowledge. However, not all believers uh, have this knowledge, uh, but some. And the some there in verse 7 is the weaker brother, as an example. Uh, some, the weaker Christians, being accustomed to the idol until now. They lived their whole life worshiping idols, praying to idols, eating meat, dedicated to idol, idols. It was their whole life. It's still in their DNA. And they haven't been leached from that reality yet. And as a result, they think idols are real. And they're afraid of them. And these weak Christians, uh, Paul goes on in verse 7, says, they eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. So they're kind of, uh, their conscience is highly sensitive and bothered by eating meat that was dedicated and prayed to an idol. And the stronger Christian needs to be sensitive to that and act accordingly. And their conscience, the end of verse 7, their conscience being weak is defiled. So if they think an idol is real and this meat was dedicated to that idol, and then we go, they go ahead and eat that hamburger that was dedicated to an idol, it actually affects their conscience in a negative way. They feel guilt in an illegitimate way. And they actually violated their conscience. They acted against their conscience, which a Christian should never do. Never violate your own conscience. And so some of the Christians in Corinth were violating their own conscience. They were being egged on out of pressure by stronger Christians. And Paul says, this needs to stop. You cannot allow weaker Christians to violate their conscience in this area. And then look at verse 8. Verse 8 is one of the rare verses in the entire chapter that's a command to both parties. The weak Christian and the stronger Christian. So this is a command for all of us today. That's why it's unique in this chapter. Uh, He says, but food will not commend us to God. That's an important principle in a lot of ways. Food is not going to commend you to God. 
Um, so if you're a vegetarian for spiritual religious reasons, um, that really doesn't impress God. If you're a vegetarian for health reasons or diet reasons, that's fine. And that's up to you or maybe your doctor or whatever, or just preference. But if you try to attach any religion to that, Paul says that, that has nothing to do with religion and being right with God, being a vegetarian or abstaining from pork. Jesus said it was clean, you could eat it. So food will not commend us to God as Christians. Uh, we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So he's kind of rebuking both parties. Uh, weaker Christian, if you abstain from certain meats, you're, you're not uh, more spiritual. And you stronger Christians, boasting in your knowledge because you have the liberty and the freedom to eat this meat dedicated to an idol because you know that idols aren't real, uh, God isn't impressed with you either. Because food has nothing to do with it with true spirituality and religion. So, knowledge and love must work together to be aware of the weak conscience. Now, the second point under that heading is verse 9 through 11. Let's look at that. Knowledge and love must work together to honor the weak conscience. And that's verse 9. Here's, this is the only imperative in the chapter. He says, but take care. Watch out. Take care. This is the command. This is to the stronger Christian. This is the Christian who doesn't have a weak conscience in this area. Take care so that this liberty of yours, this freedom you have in Christ, and when you practice it and when you employ it, make sure that it does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weaker Christian in your midst. In other words, refrain from your liberty if you must. Verse 10, For if someone, that's the weaker Christian, sees you, the stronger Christian, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple. So, say in Corinth, the strong Christian, he got saved. He, know, he knows idols are false now. There's only one God. Oh, I don't have any problem going into my uncle's temple anymore. He's, my uncle's still a pagan, and he's got good meat in there, and he's got a good butcher, and he's got leftovers. I'm going to go get meat from my uncle. and As a matter of fact, I'll sit down at the table and eat my burger in there. And then a fellow believer from the Corinthian church goes by and sees the strong Christian in the temple eating the meat that was dedicated to an idol, and that could have a lot of impact in various ways on the weaker Christian who thinks that idols are real and meat can be poisoned by demons. And so the weak Christian could think a lot of things that aren't consistent with truth. They could be thinking, wow, there's a Christian there eating meat sacrificed to an idol. That's sinful, evil, and wicked. Well, it's not. So the weaker Christian is being judgmental illegitimately. Or the weaker Christian sees the stronger Christian eating the meat, and so the, the weaker Christian thinks, oh, I guess I can eat meat that's dedicated to an idol, and I guess... I won't be, I guess idols aren't a big deal and demons aren't a big deal and I have nothing to worry about when in actuality if they begin to go to the temple and interface with false religion and idols, they might be drawn back into their old ways of religious practice. That would be like somebody who used to be an alcoholic saying, oh, okay, I can go to the bar, but in light of your past life, you might get sucked back into that evil practice. And so that's what Paul is trying to guard against here and that's, that's what's going on here. So verse 10, for if someone, the weaker Christian, uh, sees you, the stronger Christian, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat or emboldened to eat things sacrificed to idols when he shouldn't because it might violate his conscience even if he does it? And you don't want a younger, uh, a weaker Christian violating his conscience. That's why if a Christian comes to get advice from you about something, uh, should I vote, should I not vote, or, or whatever it is, well, what is your... You can give him biblical truth, but then you also have to ask him, what does your conscience say? Well, I will feel guilty if I do this. Then don't do that. You don't have a clear conscience. 
So we've got to protect our conscience. I'm not saying that conscience is the guide for truth. I'm talking about conscience in the areas of gray areas. Don't violate it. And then verse 11, For through your knowledge, strong Christian, he who is weak is ruined. You can create, you can actually cause your weaker brother to sin because if a weaker brother sins against their, or violates their conscience, that's a sin. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. And you actually played a part in causing them to sin against their conscience, which could really begin to destroy and undermine their conscience, which will hurt them in other areas as well. And it could be quite dangerous, destructive, and damning. And that's why Paul uses this word in verse 11, ruined. Not They didn't lose their salvation. But you have short-circuited the sanctification process for this weaker Christian. How, how dare you be so self-centered and willingly cause a weaker Christian to sin in this way? We should be protecting the weaker Christians, not violating them in the celebration of our liberties. And then he reminds at the end of verse 11, beautiful reminder, you're sinning against a weaker Christian. By the way, it's the brother. That is your brother or sister in Christ. They are equal with you. They're a sibling in God's family. It is the... the child of God, that Jesus Christ died for, gave his life for them. It's a, it's a sin against them, but it's also a sin against God and a sin against Christ himself, the Savior. So knowledge and love must work together to make us aware of the weak conscience in our midst, to honor the weak conscience uh, by refraining from our liberties as if, if it causes weaker brothers to stumble. And then finally, verses 12 through 13, knowledge and love must work together so that we might avoid sinning against a weak conscience. And Paul puts it this way in verse 12. And so, or as a result, by sinning against the brethren, weaker Christians, and wounding their conscience, abusing your liberties, uh, which influences them to sin against their own conscience when they have guilt, wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. There it is. That's a sin against not just your brother, but against Christ himself. Verse 13, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, he uses the word stumble two times in verse 13 as a metaphor, to sin. And it's a sin because they violate their conscience. They take an action that violates their conscience is a sin. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble or sin, then I will never eat meat again. I will deprive myself. I will withhold my liberty. And we all have liberties, Christian liberties, that we enjoy or that we have a preference for, or that maybe we practice in our life. And part of the Christian ethic is refraining or abstaining from our Christian liberty so that we might not cause others to offend or stumble. One common area might be in our culture, because we don't deal with the idle thing as much, might be alcohol. Alcohol is used in different ways, uh, even in religions, but in the Christian world, alcohol can be a stumbling block for some people. Some Christians... They see another Christian drinking wine at the dinner table, and they are offended by that. How, how dare he's a Christian, and yet he's having a glass of wine. Or they just see somebody uh, in a restaurant that serves wine. I can't believe they're at that brewery. Maybe they're just eating a hamburger, but the fact that they're at a brewery where they sell beer, that violates the conscience of the weak Christian. So alcohol is a good example. Paul even talks about alcohol in, in uh, Romans on this very topic. So this is one area where it could carry over and apply as we need to be sensitive to one another. So if you're uh, of a Christian who believes that drinking wine or alcohol occasionally is not inherently sinful, 
And if, for example, you believe that Jesus made wine, actual wine and not grape juice in John chapter 2, his first miracle? Because some Christians say, well, Jesus made grape, uh, Welch's grape juice. You're laughing. There might be somebody here who believes it was grape juice. That's a common view. And so they would say that the New Testament never condones Christians drinking alcohol. Jesus never made alcohol. He made Welch's grape juice. And then there are other Christians who think, no, he actually made wine and it's okay to drink wine as long as you don't get intoxicated on wine. So there's, there's the rub. And so you have to be sensitive uh, to your fellow believer and be knowledgeable of them and what their sensibilities are. And you don't want to needlessly cause them to stumble in light of your freedom because maybe you think, uh, no, I can drink wine. Little true story. Uh, GBF kindly sent Debbie and I to Israel a couple of years ago on a 10-day tour. It was a study tour of Israel. And I, Debbie and I were actually joined on with a, a church from Minnesota, or I, I can't remember where they were from. They were back east somewhere. Just a great group of uh, older saints. There's about 22 of them, and there's Debbie and I. And the pastor uh, was part of the co-leader of this study tour, and the pastor would give it a devotional at every site they visited over the 10 days. And the pastor, uh, the other co-leader actually asked me to give the devotional of one of the sites during the 10 days. And I was assigned Cana of Galilee. I didn't pick it. I was assigned that. And that's the story in uh, John chapter 2 where Jesus performed his first miracle. And in my Greek text, as I'm reading and studying, and this is where Jesus made oinos. That's the Greek word for wine. It's not Welch's grape juice. It's wine. And I believe it was alcoholic wine. And um, so we're on the tour bus and we're approaching Cana of Galilee and Pastor Cliff, after seven days, got to have the mic and... Uh, yeah, we're approaching Cana. Let me read John chapter 2. And here Jesus did his first uh, miracle and he made wine. And then I began to say this was really, this was actually wine and not grape juice. And uh, it probably had alcohol in it, and uh, which shows that Jesus didn't condemn drinking alcohol all the time, but condemned intoxication and drunkenness and uh, in other ways. And, but there are some churches that teach that Jesus made grape juice and uh, they actually believe that, and they think that you should never even touch alcohol or a drip of it if you're a true Christian, and that would be sinful if you did. And prayed and gave my devotion. Then I sat down, and then uh, the pastor guy got up, and he took the microphone, and he said, uh, and he followed up. Um, he wanted to rebut my devotion because he said, well, actually, as you all know, our church condemns the drinking of alcohol, and as you all know, we believe that Jesus made grape juice and not wine, and as you all know, and I was, I was stooping, slooped down into my on the bus chair and I'm down on the floor and Debbie's like, where, where are you going? <laughs> As she pulls me from out under the seat. <laughs> it was just, that was embarrassing. But anyway, it was a great example. Boy, you didn't, I didn't know my audience. And woo, I probably did some offending that day. So Debbie and I that night, we had a glass of wine and we said, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But we're going to continue. Um, Paul's now going to give an illustration in chapter 9 from his own personal life. He's going to make himself a model. He's not just preaching. He said, and now follow my example. Here's an, an area where I have deprived myself of freedoms and liberties that are rightfully mine. And I deprive myself for your sake so that I might not cause you to stumble. And then in chapter 10, he's going to give another personal example and an exhortation to highlight the truths and make them really tangible for us. Uh, from chapter 8. So with that, I'd just like to summarize and encourage you with these words as we take some truths away from this chapter. In light of gray areas, 
Here are our takeaways. Uh, Balanced knowledge with love. It's not just all about amassing knowledge from the Bible and memorizing Bible verses. And You can become a Pharisee real quick. It's got to be balanced with love and humility and deference towards your fellow believer. Uh, Also, properly diagnose something uh, as a gray area or not. Not everything is a gray area, even though some people say it is. You've got to diagnose it to make sure it really is a gray area. Uh, Also, be aware of how your liberty impacts believers around you, especially when you're on a very small bus in Israel giving a devotion so you don't offend people needlessly. And then refrain from liberties when necessary so that you don't cause your brother to to stumble. And probably the overriding principle in every chapter of this book is stop being self-centered because that's what the Corinthians' problem was. It's not about you. If you're always talking about you and your problem and what this person did to you and how they offended you and how you do this and you do that and me, 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 that was the problem with the Corinthians and that's what Paul's trying to straighten out here. We need to be other-oriented, get our eyes off of self, on serving others, get eyes off of self, and our great love and adoration for Jesus Christ and all that he has forgiven me of and made me clean. It's a great, great truth. With that, let me go ahead and pray and we'll commit our time to the Lord. Father, we do thank you for this day. God, thank you for this new facility that you've provided for us, always taking care of our needs, even our practical needs, and we we never really have to worry. Um, You are so faithful. We love you, and we love you for that. Thank you for every person that you brought here today. Go before us now. We pray for those who are regulars that couldn't be here today for different reasons, whether it was illness or travel, that you would be with them and help them return safely. And God, help us to implement these truths that you're trying to impress upon our hearts through your Holy Spirit, through your living word, through that faithful vessel, the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, so that we might honor you by how we honor believers around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.